Friends, it's good to be with you. Thanks for springing forward on this Sunday. My name is Adam, and it's my joy to be the senior pastor here at our church. It was the summer before ninth grade, and I went on a backpacking trip to Colorado uh, as a part of kind of like a church camp situation with a big group going out there. And I learned a lot of things that summer. I learned I love road trips. I learned I love camping, like at the base camp. I also learned that I didn't really like hiking the Rocky Mountains with 50 pounds on my back. Uh, And I also learned that I should listen to warnings people give me. We had kind of this orientation before our our days of backpacking, three days out on the mountain. And one of the things our leader stressed over and over and over was don't go anywhere by yourself. Don't be on the trail alone. Okay, noted, noted. So we'd been on the trail for a couple days and it started to drizzle a little bit. So I kind of picked up my pace. And I began to go kind of too fast for the slower group, but certainly way too slow for the fast group. And despite what I had been told and warned, I found myself kind of alone on the trail. At first, I wasn't real worried. Uh, The path was pretty well worn. Uh, I figured we, we couldn't have been terribly far from where we were staying that night. So I thought, oh, this is no big deal. I'd reach camp soon enough. Well, it was when I arrived at this like abandoned mining town from like the 1800s that I knew we were going to visit the next day that I realized something was really wrong. I was alone. I was lost. And I started to panic. Like, why did I listen? Why did I stay by myself? I should have stuck with the group like I was told. Whether you're nine months old, in ninth grade, or in your 90s, we generally don't like warnings as people, right? Even as children, we'll, we'll stand on our tiptoes for the must be this tall to ride sign, even, even though we're warned it might not be safe. In the 90s, uh, there was this uh, lawsuit that was really infamous and, and people mocked McDonald's need to warn people that their coffee was hot. Some of us will remember that. There's generally two types of people in the world, those that let their fuel light come on in their car that they're low on gas, and the others of us that scoff at a light like this, like you're gonna tell me how to live my life and when I need to fill up with gas. Even calorie labels are a type of warning. Hello, right, they, and they've changed how they do this. You used to have to do a little math if you wanted to figure out how much calories was in something. Now they make them put it right there on the front. This is like a warning before you drink a 20 ounce Coke. Here's how many calories are in there, good luck. Now how often does that stop anybody? If you're of a certain age, you'll remember this label, the warning of explicit content that was on CDs in the 90s, such as when I bought the West Side Connection album uh, and my parents were not too pleased. Now, a little updated version in 2021, you may see this on YouTube. This is an explicit content warning that you'll see online. Most of the time, we we think warnings apply to other people and not us. No one needs to tell us how to behave. But what if warnings aren't bad? What if warnings can actually be a good and helpful thing? What I hope we'll discover together as we study God's word today is that the one who warns is the one who loves. One of the reasons people have certain perceptions of the Bible is because it contains a lot of warnings. And so if if you're someone who, who kind of bristles at the thought of another force kind of imposing something on you, if, if you're a person who, who really places a priority on being self-determinative, the Bible might be a rough read for you. That's actually how it starts out 
with a warning. God sets parameters for Adam and Eve, the, the, the prototype of people that God has created and placed in paradise in a garden. God tells Adam he's free to enjoy all of what God created, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. For most of my life, I had no idea what that really meant. The, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I know it sounded kind of scary, but I, no one ever really explained that to me. This phrase, good and evil, like in this sense, the knowledge of good and evil, occurs a couple other times in the Old Testament. Uh, fairly soon in Genesis 3 and then Genesis 24, and then Deuteronomy uh, chapter 1 and 1 Kings chapter 3 and chapter 22. Across all of these times that this phrase, the knowledge and good and evil, occurs in the Old Testament, it consistently means to formulate and articulate a judicial decision. So interpreted this way, the concept of the knowledge of good and evil, the tree of the, co- the, the, tree of the, no- the college of good and evil, graduate of 97, majored in good, minored in evil. The tree, <laughs> thanks, Pastor Sherry. Uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil represents people having the power to decide for themselves what is in their best interest and what is not. In a word, it's free will. That God created us to look to God for what is best, not ourselves, but God also created us with a choice that we can follow God's guidance for us or we can ignore the warnings. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the ability to decide for ourselves what's best for me. That was the temptation, to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and in that way, become like God, to be self-determinative, now, you don't need two guesses to, to guess what people refer, uh, prefer to heed God's warnings or decide for ourselves. Last week, we talked about the earthly kingdom of Israel and the struggle of, of people to remain faithful to God's promise as opposed to kind of mirroring the politics of their time. Israel wants to resemble all the other powerful nations who follow an earthly king. And they're crying out to their prophet Samuel. The people of Israel said to Samuel, give us a king to lead us. This displeased Samuel, so he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord told him, listen to all the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly And let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. So Samuel's going to lay out all this for them. That that you want a king, here's what that's going to mean. And so I'm just going to pick a little sampling from 1 Samuel chapter 8. This is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. Take this as a list. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage. The best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks, and you yourselves will become his slaves. And when that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. That's a pretty stern list. And the people hear all that, and they're basically like, yep, sounds good. 
We want a king over us, verse 19 says. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. So I hope, I hope you're picking up on the pattern that we see in scripture over and over and over. People receive guidance and a, or a warning from God, not only to avoid what's bad, but to pursue what's good. And over and over they go, nah, let's do it my way. When Samuel was corresponding with, between God and people, he was filling the biblical role of prophet. Pastor Dick Foth described a prophet as someone with the authority to speak for the Almighty. The prophets acted as God's representatives among them, among people, and they often called people back to obedience to God. Now, we tend to think of a prophet as someone who can tell the future, but, but the office of, of prophet in the Bible had more to do most of the time with sort of interpreting not what was going to happen, but what was happening currently, with calling people back to the truth. Remind, prophecy in the Bible was often not about sort of forecasting what was ahead, but reminding people of what reality was and where they had come from. Reminding them of the truth of God in the present. This was not a popular job. When you're giving a warning and pointing out what is wrong and how God calls us to make things right, you're gonna make some enemies. That was certainly true for Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., one of the most quoted pastors of all time. We have a holiday for him in our country. In 1966, a Gallup poll found he was revealed as one of the most unpopular people in America. He had a 63% unfavorable rating. And you don't get assassinated because you made a bunch of friends. The prophets who speak for God pay a high price. And so in the first half of the Bible, called the Old Testament, two phrases that you see associated with prophets a lot are this is what the Lord Almighty says or then the word of the Lord came to fill in the person's name, the prophet's name. And this is true in Jeremiah where we once again see someone who is a prophet predicting a nation's downfall because of their disobedience, their refusal to follow what God warned them about. Jeremiah says in chapter six, take warning, Jerusalem. And God says, I will turn away from you and make your land desolate so no one can live in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. To whom can I speak and give warning? Who will listen to me? Their ears are closed so they cannot hear. The word of the Lord is offensive to them. They find no pleasure in it. But God is speaking, but the people refuse to listen. They want to decide for themselves what is right and what they want to do. This is not a new problem. There are consequences. This is chapter six, verses 16 through 19 of the book of Jeremiah. This is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it and you will find rest for your souls. That's a promise. But you said we will not walk in it. I appointed watchmen over you and you said, listen to the sound of the trumpet. But you said we will not listen. Therefore, hear you nations, you who are witnesses, observe what will happen to them. Hear you, earth, I am bringing disaster on this people, the fruit of their schemes, because they have not listened to my words and have rejected my law. The call to the nations in this verse from Jeremiah reminds us that the promised land that Israel had inhabited was situated between uh, the, the greatest powers on the planet, Egypt to the south and Assyria and Babylon to the north in Mesopotamia. 
These are some of the strongest and greatest civilizations in history. This made Israel primed to be a witness to the whole world of what it could look like when people choose to follow God over their own politics. But this location also made them a frequent target. This is what the Lord says. We continue in chapter six of Jeremiah. Look, an army is coming from the land of the north. A great nation is being stirred up from the ends of the earth. They are armed with bow and spear. They are cruel and show no mercy. They sound like the roaring sea as they ride on their horses. They come like men in battle formation to attack you, daughter Zion. So for generations, people spoke warnings to the people of Israel, but they did not listen. And as a result of their disobedience, the book of Jeremiah records them being carried off into exile. This whole country will become a desolate wasteland and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. So this is a huge part of the story of the Old Testament that, that God's chosen people are carried away from their land and are carried into a foreign place where they serve a foreign king. The book that follows Jeremiah is, is called Lamentations, the operative word being lament. It's a book written about the deep sadness that people feel having felt like they'd been abandoned by God, having, uh, uh, in, being in the process of crying out, why are we suffering? Why does God allow this? But even in the midst of a book of lament, we find a glimmer of hope. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. Let us examine our ways and test them, and let us return to the Lord. For hundreds of years, the Israelites rebelled against God, but God's mercies are still new every morning. That's true for each of us as well. God still pursues. God still wants the people of Israel to return back to God. That day on the mountain that I hadn't listened to the warning, I had literally chosen my own path and I was freaked out. I was alone and a storm was blowing in and there was even some thunder and lightning off in the distance. And the last thing you wanna have during a thunderstorm on a mountain is a bunch of metal in your backpack, right? So I pulled out my orange poncho and covered my pack and kind of set it to the side because I needed to get moving. And so <laughs> I was very concerned with safety all of a sudden. Right, I'd find out later as the group looked for me that way off in the distance they saw orange pack lying on the ground and that concerned them a bit. <laughs> now, I honestly don't remember how long it was. It seemed like a long time, but I faintly heard somebody yelling my name and that was when my loud nature paid off because I was able to return that call. And there was this guy on the trip, one of our leaders, his name was Ken, and he was one of these runner types. You know, the altitude didn't face him at all. He was like in his 50s or 60s and just in ridiculous shape, running all around the mountain looking for me. And we were both excited and relieved to see each other, and we even laughed about my abandoned pack. And now, it turned out that the trail had a slight fork in it, and if I would have gone slightly right, I would have gone right to camp not too long uh, after I had split off by myself. But I didn't see that because I was alone and had gone left and ventured to the old mining town. And uh, I'd been close, but missed the turn because I went solo. Ken had gone searching for me and wasn't gonna rest until I was back safe. This is a picture of how God faithfully pursues the people God created and loves. 
The warning I received, it was not oppressive or restrictive or out of touch. It was for my own good. Don't go alone. You may wander off the path and find yourself, where are my frozen two people at? Lost in the woods. That was me. I think we need to be careful about interpreting every single event in our life as a signal of God's favor or punishment. This is where it's tricky to sort out sometimes. I think there's a difference between circumstances and consequences. Right, cancer doesn't care if you're a faithful Christian. Doesn't care. I've known plenty of people who weren't believers that got better and plenty of folks who had an amazing faith in God and they succumbed to that awful disease. This is part of the mystery of our mortal lives. Why do we suffer and why do the wicked, why do the wicked prosper while the righteous suffer? But many things in life are a result of our actions, of our choices, and our priorities in life. So I do want to leave you with a bit of a warning in the form of a question. If you're not aligning your life with God's desires, what kind of outcome do you expect? Generations later, it would be revealed that, that God's plan wasn't just to rescue the nation, the nation of Israel out of danger, but to willingly enter into danger and suffering himself. In the New Testament, Jesus exiled himself from his heavenly position in order to point us back to himself. Jesus was God's ultimate prophet. Jesus spoke for God because Jesus was God. Jesus is God. And as, 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 as he spoke Throughout his teachings, many times they were words of warning. 18 times in the, in the New Testament, in the Gospels, Jesus says, woe to you. That's code for listen. Jesus says things like, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Some of the things Jesus says are still hard to take. And you don't get crucified because you didn't offend anybody. Because you didn't warn anybody. When someone warns you, it's a sign of love, not the opposite. Because that indicates that you care enough for the person's well-being to warn them. If someone didn't care, they'd just let you go on and march off into trouble. The one who warns is the one who loves. Jesus proves that God not only gives us the warning, but paid the price on the cross. Jesus himself said, no greater love is this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. And everybody said, amen.